Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Pitch Newspaper of Kansas City, Missouri, Anscape.com, The New York Times, The Associated Press, and two related readings from Bon Appetit Magazine. And I'm going to start off today's program with a reading from the United States Mission to the United Nations and its Office of Press and Public Diplomacy. The title is Statement by Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield on the International Day for People of African Descent. It was published August 31, 2023. Today we celebrate all people of African descent and their contributions to communities around the world. We also celebrate the hard-won progress we've made so far in eliminating discrimination and advancing equity for all while recognizing that we still have work to do. As President Biden has said, advancing equity is not a one-year project. It's a generational commitment. President Biden has been clear since his first day in office that racial equity and justice are and will continue to be priorities for his administration. To this end, President Biden will soon launch the first-ever President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement in the United States to advance equity for the African diaspora in the United States and around the world. Systemic racism, discrimination, and human rights abuses experienced by people of African descent are not limited to a single country. It is an evil that persists in every society living with the lingering legacy of enslavement. We must work together to fully address these ongoing challenges. As we approach the final year of the international decade for people of African descent next year, let us not slow down but work even harder to improve respect for the human rights and the fundamental freedoms of individuals of African descent to benefit all people for decades to come. That was a statement by Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield on the International Day for People of African Descent. It was published August 31, 2023 by the United States Mission to the United Nations and its Office of Press and Public Diplomacy. My next story is a book review of the book Kingdom Quarterback, which was written by Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd. The title of the article is titled Field of Play by Tyler Schneider. This appeared in the September 2023 edition of The Pitch Magazine. Kingdom Quarterback, a new book by Kansas City journalist Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd, released in August, attempts to weave a narrative of a symbiotic relationship between the city's history and the football team that has called it home since 1963. It opens not with Arrowhead or 13-second miracle drives, but with scenes of the World War I Liberty Memorial completion in 1926. The people of Kansas City simply thought that constructing a giant new memorial might change the destiny of the place, Denton Dodd wrote in the introduction. That project was guided by the forceful hand of J.C. Nichols, a controversial founding figure in the Metro's history who built the Country Club Plaza and designed model neighborhoods that included hard, racially restrictive housing covenants. We grew up in Kansas City in the 90s at a time when, especially if you grew up in the suburbs, you knew the broad strokes of the J.C. Nichols story. But the true, unvarnished story was rarely told to a white audience, Dodd says. As we were doing our research, we couldn't find a very clear, easily understandable source that could explain exactly what happened. 
The book addresses these inequalities in the city's complicated relationship with people of color as it traces the city's transformation from Cowtown to Pendergast years, followed by the upbringing and mayoral tenure of Quentin Lucas, the rise of the KC tenants in city politics, and the Chiefs' second Super Bowl victory in four seasons. Dent and Dodd both grew up in Overland Park, Kansas one of Kansas City's manicured suburbs, and met in 2006 while they were both journalism students at the University of Kansas. We were good friends, but we always stayed in touch professionally as well, just sort of enabling each other as friends in the business, Dodd says. We have a similar writing style, and we kind of look at journalism very similarly. Dodd is now a senior writer at The Athletic out of New York City. And before that, he was a sports writer for the Kansas City Star from 2010 through 2017. Dent now lives in Dallas, but has his work published in outlets like the New York Times, Texas Monthly, Vox, Wired, and more. In 2020, following the Chiefs' Super Bowl 54 win, Dent proposed the book idea to Dodd, suggesting they co-write it. Dodd agreed, and from there, the two split duties required to submit a proposal to publishers. They eventually signed a contract with the Penguin imprint, Dutton. We'd won the World Series a few years before, but this still just felt a little different. It felt like there was still so much more that was going to happen with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. I just kind of got to thinking, okay, so what does this mean for Kansas City? Because you could tell that it was changing in a lot of ways, in the sense that it had been growing in population for a while, especially downtown, Dent says. Over the next 18 months, the pair versed themselves in the city's lore and conducted as many as 100 interviews. Dodd was at Super Bowl 57, while Dent, at one point, made the roughly 100-mile trek to eastern Texas to visit Patrick Mahomes Sr. and Tyler. I think the most interesting, shocking thing that I discovered during the reporting process was the highways. We know US-71 goes through that stretch there on the east side, but that was actually just one option, Dent says. The other, of course, was to go through the Country Club District. And there were actually some plans for it along the trolley track trail. I talked to some people who lived on the east side at the time, and as they put it, there was no chance it was ever going to be built on the plaza or near the Country Club District. When the Chiefs couldn't run it back following a Super Bowl 55 loss to Tom Brady's Bucks in 2021, the authors were granted some more time to sift through the archives. The discoveries and revelations kept coming, strengthening the final narrative. I think one thing we found out was that at places like the Kansas City Call, black journalists in KC throughout the 20th century were telling these stories, and nobody was listening, Dodd says. On the sports side of things, Kingdom quarterback is littered with deeper cuts like Curtis McClinton, a black player who scored the Chiefs' first ever touchdown in 1963, a preseason game, though he still went for 73 yards, and who was later discriminated against when trying to find a home near the plaza. The book also tells of the unconventional and sometimes contradictory nature of the late Lamar Hunt's style of ownership, how he almost considered keeping the Texans team name when the franchise moved to Dallas to Kansas City in 1963, as well as his hiring of Lloyd Wells, the first black scout in National Football League history. Hunt was never confused for a progressive. He was, however, a strident capitalist, an American Football League outsider trying to disrupt the establishment NFL, Dent and Dot Wright. So Hunt hired Wells, 
the relationship came to change the fortunes of the Kansas City Chiefs and alter the face of professional football. Wells was responsible for the decision to draft Buck Buchanan in 1963, the first time an AFL or NFL team would draft a black player first overall. Buchanan played 12 seasons with the Chiefs as an offensive lineman, won a Super Bowl, and was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1990. Another third of the book discussed Mahomes' upbringing, his natural tendency to experiment on the field, the contours and influences of his raspy, twangy Kermit the Frog voice, and most importantly, his place as the standard bearer of a long line of black quarterback trailblazers like Marlon Briscoe, Warren Moon, and Doug Williams. Just like the restricted truce-divide housing ecosystem was long and quietly enforced, the league-wide cultural stigma against black quarterbacks took decades to begin to dissipate. Mahomes and contemporaries such as Philadelphia's Jalen Hurts have achieved new heights for the cause's visibility. After the Chiefs won Super Bowl 57 earlier this year, the final pieces of the puzzle began to fall in place as if Mahomes was firing them off left-handed on a bum ankle in the playoffs. Some of this stuff sounds a little cliche at this point, but the Chiefs are never really out of the game. You literally just have that feeling of, they're going to win, Dodd says. I'm not sure Casey has ever had that feeling about anything. The timing was perfect, with the pair finding time between championships to interview members of KC Tenants, including leader Diane Charity. The conversations proved to be key in bringing the Kingdom quarterback story full circle, or as close as possible while the saga is ongoing. After explaining over a century's worth of history on redlining and similar racially discriminative city planning practices, Dent and Dodd found the city's current emphasis on affordable housing to be another hint that greater progress off the field is also beginning to take place. The tenants help illustrate what's happening with these issues now that people are a lot more alert about the wrongs that were done in the past and thinking of ways to fix them, Dent says. In many ways, the final product, a 388-page, 306 without the postscript, fusion of sports, urbanization, politics, and the human spirit is almost more about the good, the bad, and the ugly of KC history than it is about Patrick Mahomes or his dynasty. I think our book kind of explains what happened to the American city, and Kansas City is easily the American city, Dent says. I think for people who live elsewhere, it offers a valuable lesson, both to understand what happens to cities and to see what people are doing about it now. The football stuff, while fantastic and insightful, often plays the role of the appetizing topping to a story that deserves to be told with or without sports. With them, however, the book's many overlapping topics work together in tandem with shorter chapters that alternate from subject to subject on their way to presenting a narrative that feels shorter than it actually is. As Dodd says, write the things that you really want to read. As it turns out, Kingdom Quarterback is exactly that. That was the article Field of Play, written by Tyler Schneider. It was a review of the book Kingdom Quarterback, which was written by Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd. This book review appeared in the September 2023 edition of The Pitch Magazine. Now I have another reading that deals with the intersection of football and race, this time in Colorado. The title of this story is Deion Sanders transforms Colorado into Black America's team. 
I found this at the Anscape.com website. It was written by Clinton Yates and published September 20th, 2023. The comedian Lou Young is channeling his inner Dion Sanders, a running bit that the popular YouTube creator has been on for a while. Young's comic timing is impeccable. His ability to imitate the Colorado football coach is funny on the surface, but what's clear is that Young doesn't have to try that hard to get it right. His mannerisms are so well known by now that when Young was invited to speak to the team, he didn't do anything but solicit call and response answers from the crowd, just like Coach does before the game. Sanders loved it. This particular chapter of Sanders' American sporting life is arguably its most fascinating. The flashy multi-sport star has turned a college campus into one of the most popular places to be in America. Where Sanders goes, eyeballs, talented ball players, and most specifically, money follows. Rappers Cameron and Master P, L.A. Clippers forward Kawhi Leonard are here. Rapper Offset came from a sleepover, same clothes, gang and all. Former NFL player Rob Gronkowski and actor Dwayne The Rock Johnson made live appearances during the pregame shows on campus. The week before, the hip-hop collective Wu-Tang Clan was in the building. For what we're going to assume is a first in college football, Saturday night, rapper Lil Wayne walked the team out of the tunnel while he was performing. What's happening in Boulder is new in the sense that college football has never seen this kind of meteoric rise in popularity, never mind success in such a short time. And while technically the Buffaloes program has never received this kind of attention, what's happening at Folsom Field is much bigger than the Pac-12, Boulder County, or even the picturesque Flatirons visible from just about every place in town. When Sanders first showed up on campus claiming that his designer luggage was a standard that they'd have to get used to, many people shrugged it off as standard trash talk from one of the greatest to ever do it. Sure, they might have a little splash and excite some people in the mountain time zone, but that's about it. One offseason and three wins later, this is black America's now. No doubt about it. Following in the footsteps of teams such as the Georgetown Hoyas of the 1980s, UNLV and the Fab Five at Michigan in the 1990s and Miami Hurricanes football in the 1980s and 1990s, it doesn't matter who you rooted for before or even still do now, if you don't even particularly care about college football, brothers and sisters, you probably care about Sanders and his team. Speaking of, drama has definitely been a plenty in Sanders' life and career, fairly or not. When he arrived at Jackson State University, it caused quite the stir for a whole host of reasons. Folks didn't like how he ran his program, how he apparently treated other coaches, or the general lack of deference he showed when it came to respecting the traditions of historically black colleges. And while there's obviously a lot of merit to that, let's be clear. Sanders was a Hall of Famer in college and the pros before he ever put on a headset anywhere. So while there are definitely pockets of folks who don't particularly appreciate how Sanders has made them feel, for the most part, he is beloved in the community and is bringing eyeballs to a team that most people watching couldn't locate on a map. Nobody on earth would have otherwise been watching two black coaches, Sanders and Colorado State coach Jay Norvell, face off in an otherwise meaningless week three rivalry game. Instead, it was the most talked about and best game of the weekend. 
It cannot be understated how absolutely bizarre it is to see the residents of Boulder, Colorado, walking around with prime T-shirts on at a school that's barely 5% black. His bodyguards wear shirts that say, F around and find out. Folks are saying the locker room looks like entertainment agency Rock Nation brunch before games. Old, crunchy, kitschy shops are selling random trinkets that say prime on them just to cash in on the fun. All this in a place where a local photographer on the sidelines to take pictures of celebrities lamented to a colleague, I don't recognize them. I don't listen to rap. Colorado exports a lot of things culturally. Blackness is not one of them. The stereotypical images that come to mind of friends sitting around a campfire listening to the Lumineers folk band and cozied up in their outdoorsman gear that they only wear to grocery shop are all very real. Particularly in Boulder, you gotta look long and hard to find a black person who isn't an athlete or athlete adjacent. Seriously. Not that this is different from many college towns in America, but due to its proximity to Denver and relatively bucolic setting, it does sort of give off the we live in a simulation vibe. Even if the local museum is proudly displaying a daily camera story with the headline, Museum of Boulder Creating Exhibit, Curriculum to Proclaim Colorado's Black History, in its lobby, and it's not even February. 2000 was when I started here. We had to find community. I thought there were black people here. They were in the brochures. Colorado State Representative Leslie Harrod said during lunch last week on the popular Pearl Street Mall in Boulder. And then I went to my first class. It was an auditorium-style classroom, huge campus, and there was nobody but me. So I was very confused. In that first day, though, a black person stopped me on campus and said, I know what you're looking for. Come hang out at the UMC at noon. That's where we all hang out. Harriet went to high school in nearby Colorado Springs, so she wasn't entirely unfamiliar with the demographic layout of the state on the whole, but school itself took a good amount of getting used to. Luckily, after someone reached out to her, she found her village and went on to bigger and better things based on her college experience. I came here with all the hopes and dreams and thought I was actually going to be a cheerleader. And when I realized how white it was, how much work needed to happen, I got thrust into activism and I became a student activist, Herod 41 said. I started running for office. I got all the folks at those different tables to run for office with me. We took over the student governments. We had the largest student government in the nation because of student fee autonomy. So I ran a $36 million budget before I was 20 when I was a president. And I realized that there's so many opportunities when you have access to the power and the wealth. Those last two things are immediately evident around town. There's just no way that a city of that size should be supporting that many luxury outwear establishments year-round. Everything feels expensive, even in God's country, but there are real problems. In 2018, the city sponsored an event called Speak Out, held by the Human Relations Commission and designed to give a voice to residents after a 2017 poll of Boulderites proved something most people there could have told you for years. Members of minority groups feel uncomfortable in town and face a lot of discrimination based on a number of factors. It's something that clearly trickles down to the university level as well. A 2016 poll of students found that 62% of black respondents said they did not feel supported or valued on campus. 
Most recently this week, a group of black women wrote a letter to the School of Education at the University of Colorado Boulder, pointing out how years of a toxic work environment led multiple faculty members to leave. A troubling deep dive into the inner workings of an academic environment designed to emotionally tax black women to the point of departure. The letter includes pages and pages of support from the Colorado education community. While the School of Education and Colorado University as a whole might be intoxicated by the continued exploitation of black bodies during this football season as new waves of preeminence, distinction, and prestige roll in, bolstered by $60 million in additional revenue on merchandise alone, and off the bondage and servitude of new black student-athletes, who, of course, have a host of support and resources for holistic being not offered to the larger student body, we remind our community members that other students, faculty, and staff also inhabit these spaces of higher education and are being abused brazenly and without apology. The body of the correspondence reads, It is beyond horrendous for this institution to put its funding, faculty, and focus on frivolous activities such as football or public events while enforcing internal colonial rhetoric amongst their staff and students, student Elena Overa wrote. It is an endemic issue to the development of academic identity for marginalized students of all ages, and it should be taken with serious consideration from a predominantly white, wealthy university that continues to profit hand over fist because of the labor of BIPOC employees, including the head football coach, wrote State Representative Tim Hernandez. I call on the leadership of the Colorado University system to investigate its hiring practices and experiences of BIPOC faculty and staff should they ever seek to serve or truly create safe, sustainable learning conditions for the ever-increasing non-white K-12 through student population in the state of Colorado. Football isn't going to fix years of institutionalized discrimination. Whether anyone believes or can prove that Colorado is a better or worse job than Jackson State from a football visibility standpoint is a different matter, than the situations at these schools physically. In terms of lifestyle, they're basically polar opposites for Sanders. But because Sanders is who he is, as far as a lot of people go, he fits right in. He's rich, he's flashy, and enjoys the outdoors. But he's not only working for himself, contrary to much criticism. He has been intentional about building black community outside of this space, Herod explained. When he first came to Colorado... He reached out to members of the Black Caucus, especially myself and Senator James Coleman, who's my colleague, and said, What's up? What's up with Colorado? What's up with this place? I'm a pretty known alumni here, so it was like, let's talk. We sat down multiple times, and he was like, well, what can I do? What can I bring? What does this look like? At the speak-out function so many years back, a mother got up and told a story of how her Black daughter was processing things at school. She was told that her skills were too professional and made the other kids look bad. That's what we're dealing with. Sure, the town had a black mayor, but Penfield Tate II is also the only one. A beautiful mural of his face was created on the side of City Hall after colleagues pushed for some type of honor in his name. In contrast to Jackson, Mississippi, where Sanders coached at Jackson State for three years, and many places around the Southwestern Athletic Conference, one might think that bringing that many young black athletes to town with so much pomp and circumstance could end up being risky, if not downright harmful, if for whatever reason things don't work out. 
So it's one thing for a coach to do a bunch of glad-handing well-wishers and others who might eventually become backstabbers. It's quite another thing to show up and seek out lawmakers to help pass legislation that helps everyone involved, including your own players and students. We started talking about the fact that I ran with James, the Name, Image, and Likeness Bill, the initial Name, Image, and Likeness Bill for the students. And that was a conversation that we were having when I was on campus. So when I was elected, it was no question about whether or not I was going to run that bill or if we need to pass it, Herod noted. We passed it and needed tweaks. And Sanders came back, he lobbied us and talked about the importance of it. And I think he, in fact, brought some of the conversation forward about why it needed to change. More generally, the culture of Boulder very much has a look and feel. Sanders doesn't fit that culture, but like many of his life's adventures, that mold has ended up fitting to him. He's being extra black with it. That's community, literally. I'd never seen these kids wearing black and gold, and now they're wearing black and gold, and everyone's talking about it, Herod said. Senator Coleman's got two little ones who are very athletic, and it's just like now they want to come here. An American icon. Those were the words that Gus Johnson, lead play-by-play announcer for Fox Sports, used to describe Sanders after the Buffaloes beat Texas Christian University on September 2nd. To the naked ear, it sounds hyperbolic. But anyone who's been alive as long as Sanders has been doing pretty much anything knows it's true. His personality sparks such a specific type of hatred from onlookers it's almost comical to watch. If you wanted to spend hours of your life watching or reading people eat their words about Sanders, you could. But this latest chapter is genuinely impressive, even if operating as a program with an undefined goal. The Georgetown Hoyas were known for graduating tough players and specializing in centers. The Fab Five were a cultural force that reminded America that the athletes are the reason anyone shows up to watch. University of Nevada at Las Vegas was a hard-nosed operation that flew in the face of blue-blooded Duke in a time when they felt unbeatable. The Miami Hurricanes all looked like men among boys when they took the gridiron. There is something sort of obvious, even if wrote, about the black community's natural rooting interest in those teams. Sanders' operation feels completely different, even if the success isn't necessarily grand. The undercurrent of most of the criticism of what they do feels rooted in some form of racism, even if not outright. Tell me again, what exactly the problem is, ever, with Sanders? The answers are often all over the place, with shifting goalposts that ultimately seem to just add up to a strange form of jealousy that feels repeatedly bizarre considering who we're talking about. The implication from various people that this is all some kind of snake oil or scam televangelist operation falls apart when you remember that, hello, man has been winning for a long time. As for comparisons to some of the most important teams in pop culture history, the coach hopes that his kids understand just how valuable this moment is to people other than themselves. Well, first of all, these kids weren't even born then, so they don't understand that, Dennis Thurman and some of the older coaches like myself. We understand that and how dynamic and how much of a blessing that is to even be mentioning those likes, Sanders said after the Buffs pulled out a double overtime win at Folsom Field. It is tremendous. It's not a burden whatsoever. It's a blessing, and we are thankful for that. But I don't think our young men inside the locker room understand the moment. That's what I told them in that last series. Guys, this is a moment you would never forget. 
Let's maximize this moment. And they went out and did it. The idea that someone as clearly influential as Sanders is somehow overhyped is baffling. Nearly 9 million people tuned in to watch them beat Nebraska. That was up from 7.5 million against TCU on September 2nd. The double overtime thriller against Colorado State was the fifth most watched college football game in ESPN's history at 9.3 million viewers. They're legitimately pumping millions of dollars into the Boulder economy. By no means is this a renegade program. What will be interesting to see in the future is exactly what Sanders himself considers success. There are plenty of different options to take. Is it to win a national title? Make it back to regular bowl games? Win Heismans? Graduate players? Or turn guys into pros? All of the above sounds like the easy option, or rather the most bombastic. But there's something about the current moment that makes all those inquiries feel pointless. Sanders has single-handedly saved college football in an era in which nobody really knows what the sport is going to be. Right now, in Boulder, none of that matters. Across the country, our people are tuned in. And as Sanders continues to create safe spaces for young, outspoken athletes, it will only grow. When you're that young, and all of us were young one day, some of us are still young and naive, we don't understand. These moments are just slipping by slowly, but surely, and we've got to grasp them, Sanders said after beating Colorado State. What happened and what transpired today was incredible. It really was from the start to the finish of the day. Why people are trying so hard not to enjoy it is perplexing. That was the article, Deion Sanders Transforms Colorado into Black America's Team. It was written by Clinton Yates and appeared at the Anscape.com website on September 20th, 2023. My next reading is an opinion piece from the New York Times and its NewYorkTimes.com website. The title is The Forgotten Radicalism of the March on Washington. It was published August 29, 2023, and was written by Jamel Bowie. As remembered and commemorated by most Americans, the 1963 March on Washington, its 60th anniversary fell on Monday, August 28th, represents the essence of the civil rights movement defined in our national mythology as a colorblind demand for neutrality and fairness in the face of discrimination embodied in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that his four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Less well remembered, in our collective memory at least, is the fact that both the March and King's speech were organized around much more than opposition to anti-black discrimination. It was officially known as the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, with a far more expansive vision for society than formal equality under the law. The march wasn't a demand for a more inclusive arrangement under the umbrella of post-war American liberalism, as it might seem today. It was a demand for something more, for a social democracy of equals, grounded in the long black American struggle to realize the promises of the Declaration of Independence and the potential of Reconstruction. Consider the ten-point list of demands issued by the organizers of the march. They wanted comprehensive and effective civil rights legislation to guarantee all Americans access to all public accommodations, 
decent housing, adequate and integrated education, and the right to vote. They wanted a massive federal program to train and place all unemployed workers, Negro and white, on meaningful and dignified jobs at decent wages. They wanted a National Minimum Wage Act that will give all Americans a decent standard of living. They wanted federal legislation to protect workers from exploitation and a federal government that brought its full power to bear on discrimination and disenfranchisement. Or better yet, consider the labor leader, A. Philip Randolph's opening speech to the assembled marchers. We want a free democratic society dedicated to the political, economic, and social advancement of man along moral lines, said Randolph, for whom the 1963 march on Washington was the fulfillment of a call made more than two decades earlier in the midst of World War II to let the Negro masses speak with 10,000 Negroes strong, marching down Pennsylvania Avenue in the capital of the nation. The sanctity of private property takes second place to the sanctity of the human personality, Randolph said in his speech. It falls to the Negro to reassert this proper priority of values because our ancestors were transformed from human personalities into private property. We know, he continued, that we cannot expect the realization of our aspirations through the same old anti-democratic social institutions and philosophies that have all along frustrated our aspirations. The chief organizer of the March on Washington, Bayard Rustin, had a complicated relationship with his allies in the movement. His youthful communism, wartime objection to the draft, and unapologetic sexuality, Rustin was openly gay, rendered him an outsider among civil rights leaders and a target for rivals and opponents. Nonetheless, he spoke on the day of the event, delivering the demands of the march directly to the viewing public and gave a clear account of the social democratic vision behind the march in a memo written for others in the movement. We believe that the Negro community has an especially important role to play. For the dynamic that has motivated Negroes to withstand with courage and dignity the intimidation and violence they have endured in their own struggle against racism in all its forms, may now be the catalyst which mobilizes all workers behind demands for a broad and fundamental program of economic justice. Much, if not most, of the civil rights movement has been subsumed into the mythology of Martin Luther King, Jr. That is, it has been subsumed into the image of a king who stands for little else than colorblindness, nonviolence, and moral suasion. That doesn't represent the full king, of course, and in the same way, that doesn't represent the march on Washington as it was actually conceived and carried out. The real march, through the paramount influences of Randolph, Rustin, and others, was an expression of the democratic and egalitarian aspirations of the black freedom struggle as voiced and articulated throughout the previous decades by activists, intellectuals, and laborers alike. As the liberal journalist Murray Kempton wrote of the event for the New Republic, no expression one-tenth so radical has ever been seen or heard by so many Americans. Living now, as we do, in a period of anti-democratic re-entrenchment at the hands of powerful reactionaries, it is as important as ever to remember and commemorate the radicalism of both the March on Washington and the entire civil rights movement, not just as inspiration, but as a reminder that the struggle for democratic freedom, whether we look to the enslaved Americans who claimed the Declaration of Independence as their own, 
or their descendants who stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial nearly two centuries later, has always been a struggle against the privileges of caste and class. That was the opinion piece titled, The Forgotten Radicalism of the March on Washington. It was written by Jamel Bowie, capital J-A-M-E-L-L-E, capital B-O-U-I-E. This appeared August 29, 2023, in the New York Times website of nytimes.com. Next is the first of three readings I have about poet Rita Dove. This is from the Associated Press and its AP.com website. The title is Poet Rita Dove to Receive an Honorary National Book Award Medal for Lifetime Achievement. It was written by Hillel Italy and published September 8, 2023. Poet Rita Dove has a sharp, simple goal in response to receiving a National Book Award for Lifetime Achievement. I want it to be a milestone, not a tombstone. It may seem like a rather macabre metaphor, but I simply meant, knock on wood, that I haven't reached the end of my journey as an artist. I'm still observing, questioning, exploring, she adds. The National Book Foundation, the nonprofit which presents the book awards, announced Friday that Dove is this year's winner for its Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, an honor previously given to Toni Morrison, Edwin White, and Art Spiegelman, among others. Dove, 71, has been a published author for 50 years. Her notable books, including her Pulitzer Prize-winning collection Thomas and Beulah, inspired by her maternal grandparents. She is best known for her poetry, but has worked in other art forms and is currently planning a memoir. She has published short fiction, the novel Through the Ivory Gate, the play The Darker Face of the Earth, and even collaborated with the Oscar-winning film composer John Williams on the song cycle Seven for Luck. Rita Dove's oeuvre, from poetry, plays, and songs to essays and fiction, is a testament to her dazzling skill across genre and form. Ruth Dickey, the National Book Foundation's executive director, said in a statement, Dove's work transforms the everyday into the remarkable, brilliantly blending music, politics, and let's not forget, pleasure. The National Book Awards ceremony is scheduled for November 15th in Manhattan, with Drew Barrymore hosting. Besides the tribute to Dove, winners will be announced in five competitive categories, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, translation, and young people's literature. The foundation also will present a Literarian Award to Paul Yamazaki, the longtime buyer at San Francisco's famed City Lights booksellers and publishers, poet and City Lights co-founder Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who died two years ago, received the inaugural Literarian Prize in 2005. Dove, a native of Akron, Ohio, has long excelled academically and professionally. As one of the country's top high school students, she was named a presidential scholar. She graduated summa cum laude from the University of Miami in Ohio and later received a master's from the prominent creative writing program at the University of Iowa. In 1993, in her early 40s, she became the youngest person at the time appointed U.S. Poet Laureate and the first black writer to hold the position. Dove has received so many previous honors, lifetime and competitive, that it's almost surprising the Book Foundation didn't get around to her sooner. Besides the Pulitzer, she has received both 
a National Humanities Medal and a National Medal of Arts. An NAACP Image Award, the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize from the Poetry Foundation, a National Prize for Poetry from the Library of Congress, and a Gold Medal for Poetry from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, along with honorary doctorates at dozens of colleges. A fellow Pulitzer winner, poet Jericho Brown, will introduce Dove at the National Book Awards. Dove's influences range from Shakespeare to a parody of William Blake that appeared in Mad Magazine. Her subjects are equally eclectic, whether her grandmother dusting and bringing dark wood to life, the trim name and daring dream of Rosa Parks or the poet's own love for dancing. When her house in Charlottesville, Virginia was badly burned by a lightning strike in 1998, she and her husband Fred Vibon learned ballroom dancing as a way to heal. They even added a ballroom space when the home was rebuilt. She called her first poem written after the fire, Foxtrot Fridays, which reads in part, Thank the stars there's a day, each week to tuck in the grief. Lift your pearls and stride brush stride, quick, quick with a heel ball toe. Authors often speak of declining values and standards, but Dove welcomes the evolution of poetry since she started out. For a black poet, the field once seemed restricted to one favorite at a time and the expectation that the poet would address the black experience, she calls. Dove now sees far more possibilities and praises such organizations as Cave Canem, a New York City-based organization that supports young black poets. Dove herself has guided young writers as a creative writing teacher at the University of Virginia, while also working to expand poetry's appeal during her time as the U.S. laureate. People seem frightened of poetry and somehow separated from their lives, when in fact, poetry is the essence of life, she says. That was the article, Poet Rita Dove to Receive an Honorary National Book Award for Lifetime Achievement. This appeared at the Associated Press's AP.com website and was published September 8, 2023. Next, I have an example of Rita Dove's writing. This is an essay that appeared in the August 8, 2023 edition of Bonapetit.com. It's an essay titled, I Avoided Apples My Whole Life. At the foot of Mount Sinai, I Realized Why. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. How often have I heard those words as a child, usually after school when I was begging for a popsicle? Not that I had anything against fresh fruit. I just preferred nearly any other kind. Cherries, peaches, plums. Even though I admired the fresh crimson contours of a red delicious, the resounding crack of that first bite, something was off. After eating one, I'd feel slightly out of sorts a vague unease. That didn't stop me from devouring one of my mother's signature desserts, Apple Brown Betty. In our family kitchen in Akron, Ohio, I was permitted to watch but not touch since the household budget was tight and ingredients were too precious to allow for mistakes. In this laboratory of hissing pressure cookers and sizzling iron skillets, my mother was a master of practical chemistry transforming the garden's yield of squash and string beans into steaming casseroles, preserving the overabundant tomatoes in mason jars. When it came to desserts, she turned from science to art, whisking, dipping, and sprinkling, flamboyant meringues tested with the finger flick, sugar tart crusts tapped lightly before sliding perfectly crimped into the oven, 
My mother's apple brown Betty was a bravura performance, golden crescents zinging with cinnamon and nutmeg, topping crisp to a nutty gold. Cooking the apples seemed to lessen my apple aversion somewhat, but Mom knew it was my least favorite fruit, so she looked for substitutes. Her experimental varieties, crumbles with cherry, plum, nectarine, were even more phenomenal. When at eighteen I went off to college and became a card-carrying adult and mortarboard intellectual, I thought I had left all that folk wisdom behind. Shut that window, or you'll catch your death a cold. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. But those old adages die hard. Even now I will toss a pinch of spilled salt over my left shoulder. Why should a childhood axiom extolling the nutritional value of apples have been any different? They had to be good for you, right? Which might explain why, one hot summer day less than a decade after I graduated, I found myself rumbling through the Sinai Peninsula in a rough-riding desert tour bus, void of air conditioning, feeling virtuous as I munched through my second greenish-yellow apple. It was 1979. The last months before the Camp David Accords facilitated Israel's return of the Sinai back to Egypt, and we were trekking to the site of Moses' vision of the Ten Commandments. Every hour, our tour guide took a battered cardboard box from the front seat and paraded it down the aisle like a bass drum in a marching band, urging those dubious fruits upon us. Are you drinking enough? This heat will suck you dry. Drink. Eat that apple. Stay hydrated. I took another bite. Surprised to be savoring the tart juice, why had I shunned this heavenly fruit? I should have known. Except for me and my husband Fred, an African American poet and a German novelist, our bus was full of American Jews. But no one questioned what we were doing in the mix. We refilled our canteens, reprised songs from Fiddler on the Roof. The plan: set up camp and bed down at the base of Mount Sinai near an Israeli military post. Within sight of Saint Catherine's, the oldest continuously occupied monastery since the sixth century, get up at 2 a.m. for a pre-dawn hike. Welcome sunrise at the summit. By 9 p.m., we had crawled into our sleeping bags. The ground was hard, but no one complained. There were just a few hours left to shore up energy for the climb. I closed my eyes, felt myself falling past the point of sleep into a pit of silence, deeper and deeper. Then a tug, a yank, and I broke surface into a softer dark, flickering with stars. Above me, a stranger's head dangling like a frightened moon. Faint murmurings, indistinct. Some poor soul moaning. Oh God, what was that? My voice? Fred's familiar face thrust into the picture. I couldn't wake you up, he yelled. You didn't move, so I slapped you. Slowly, my surroundings came into focus. Darkness. Punctuated by camping lanterns, a desert night, cool on my cheeks, the rest of me sweltering in the sleeping bag. Nearby, a few men conferred urgently while the other bus passengers held a nervous distance. I tried, but despite Fred's help, failed to sit up as the men approached, introducing themselves as physicians and pharmacists. "You're severely allergic to something," one of the doctors said, "and require immediate treatment." The army base commander has offered to helicopter you to the hospital in Sharm El Sheikh. Helicopter, I rasped. The very word pitched me back into freefall. I was terrified of flying on small aircraft. A helicopter ride might put me under for good. However, a pharmacist interjected, "Perhaps we can concoct an antidote to tide you over. 
Do you fill up to some gefilte fish in canned corn? Gefilte fish in canned corn. Not exactly my daily fare, but nothing had ever sounded more delicious. Two cans from the stockpile on the bus were brought over, and I scarfed them down, gaining strength with every forkful. Huffing, the doctors shook their heads, but the pharmacist cheered when I cautiously sat up. You'll be fine, but if you don't nail the source of your allergic reaction, the next time might be worse. He admonished, then joined the ascent. Fred and I stayed behind with a few others who had elected not to climb. As the sky brightened, we reviewed our past fainting episodes. In the three years we've been together, there've been two. First, while I was a student at the Iowa Writers Workshop after sampling a classmate's apple walnut bread. Then again, when Fred was teaching at Oberlin College at a faculty Halloween party featuring what else? Candy apples. Suddenly, my childhood discomforts made sense. Why my mother's brown Betty had elicited the most delight whenever she replaced apples for peaches or plums, or cherries, my favorite, plucked from our scraggly backyard tree. As I got older, my intolerance for apples must have also grown until even baked goods proved impossible to stomach. During that long hot day on the desert bus, I'd been so anxious to keep the doctor away that I ate one apple after another, and in the end. Managed to summon a fleet of medical professionals. There it was, clear evidence of what my body had been trying to warn me of all along. But like Old Testament Eve, I'd ignored the portents until they caught up with me here at the foot of Mount Sinai. Had I been courting original sin by eating apples? Nonsense, I thought. It's just a coincidence. And decided then and there to abandon the biblical analogy for the more hopeful dread of the brothers Grimm. I call my mystery allergy the Snow White syndrome. To my knowledge, that fairy tale princess and I are the only two whose reaction to raw apples is to black out. To this day, I don't know why the pharmacist's corn and fish antidote worked. It goes against all reason. Processed seafood, a high-fiber vegetable that can trigger anaphylaxis. An example of the proverbial fighting fire with fire, perhaps. The pharmacist merely smiled. They weren't giving away their secrets. Specialists in the United States were equally perplexed and suggested a battery of intrusive allergy tests, which I declined. Instead, I filled the prescription for an EpiPen and reconfigured my canned food inventory just in case. As the proverb goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Luckily, there are plenty of fruits around to fill the void. Although the apple brown Betty roots go back to colonial America, its first mention in print wasn't until 1864 in the Yale Literary Magazine, where the B in Betty was capitalized, but not the B in Brown, lending to some speculation that Brown refers not to the dessert, but the skin color of the recipe's creator, a servant possibly enslaved. I remember my mother's culinary improvisations: leftovers folded into casseroles, no-name desserts yummier than many a five-star confection. How, in the tradition of making do, she'd sometimes add oats to the fruit medley, which technically resulted in a crisp or crumble, but she called them all brown Betties. I like to think that it harkens back to the first Betty who, in need of a quick dessert, slapped together a miracle from the ingredients at hand. So here, cobbled together from memory with deep love, is my mom's never the same twice recipe for insert your favorite fruit here, brown Betty. 
I leave it to you to omit whatever ingredients might send you into a fainting spell. Next is a recipe for Brown Betty that was referred to in the previous essay. It's called Stone Fruit Brown Betty. This appeared in the September 2023 edition of Bon Appetit magazine and was written by Rita Dove. Total time, 55 minutes. The defining characteristic of a brown Betty is the use of fresh breadcrumbs as the crumble topping. Why is that important? It means that if you have some summer fruit and a few slices of sandwich bread about to go stale, you're just a few steps away from dessert. Any soft sliced bread will work, but white bread is particularly apt because of its inherent sweetness. When tossed with sugar and warm spices and coated with melted butter, it evokes the nostalgic flavors of cinnamon toast. Serve the finished Betty with vanilla ice cream for a hot and cold, fruity and creamy treat. What you'll need. A rimmed baking sheet. A microplane. A three-quart baking dish. And a food processor. Ingredients. Four six to eight servings. Two pounds ripe stone fruit, such as peaches, plums, and or nectarines, Slice one-fourth to one-half inch thick. Two tablespoons cornstarch or potato starch. Two teaspoons finely grated lemon zest. One tablespoon fresh lemon juice. One-half cup plus one-quarter cup of sugar. One-half teaspoon diamond crystal or one-quarter teaspoon Morton kosher salt plus more. Five slices white sandwich bread. One half teaspoon ground cardamom. One half teaspoon ground cinnamon. Five tablespoons unsalted butter melted. Preparation. Step one. Preheat oven to 350 degrees. Taste a slice from two pounds of ripe stone fruit, such as peaches, plums, and or nectarines, sliced one quarter to one half inch thick for sweetness. Then toss with two tablespoons cornstarch or potato starch, two teaspoons finely grated lemon zest, one tablespoon fresh lemon juice, one-third cup sugar, or up to one-half cup if fruit is on the tart side, and one teaspoon diamond crystal or one-quarter teaspoon Morton kosher salt in a two-and-a-half-quart baking dish to combine. Step 2. Pulse five slices white sandwich bread in a food processor to chickpea-sized pieces. Measure about two and a half cups breadcrumbs and transfer to a medium bowl. Save remainder for another use. Season breadcrumbs with salt. Add one half teaspoon ground cardamom, one half teaspoon ground cinnamon, and remaining one quarter cup sugar and toss to combine. Drizzle five tablespoons unsalted butter melted over. Toss to distribute. Step three. Scatter breadcrumbs mixture in an even layer over fruit. Place Betty on a foil lined rim baking sheet and bake until topping is golden brown and filling is bubbling. 45 to 50 minutes. Let cool slightly before serving. Do ahead. Betty can be made one day ahead. 
Let cool completely. Store tightly wrapped at room temperature. That was the recipe for Stoned Fruit Brown Betty. It was written by Rita Dove and was published in the September 2023 edition of Bon Appetit magazine. And that was my third and final reading today about award-winning poet Rita Dove. That's all for this week. If you would like to hear this show again or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader archives at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.